0: Now, um, I, I just want to quickly say it's been a pleasure to be the MC. Uh, I won't be MCing tomorrow because I have to go back up to Sydney to film. Um, I juggled. I uh, do. Oh, that was nice. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, and stay out. Um, no, no. It's it's been an absolute treat, and and. Uh, I really take it as a privilege to have been able to have a bit of fun and and, and be around everyone. And I'm sure tomorrow there'll be lots of uh, lots of things wound up and wrapped up and and bound for for the next APC, which I look forward to hearing where that's going to be. And I suppose the, the one thing I I just wanted to wrap, if I if I if I could, is just say I think after after hearing someone like Bruce speak and then Row, I think one and and then hearing that you know, our actions matter, probably the most important thing we can do is hold space. Hold space. Talk about Bruce's work and hold that open so that he can continue to reach further because that's what he's been doing with his work. He's been making that reach and making it making it gain traction and our capacity just to talk about it opens that space so that, he can take it to that next step and call on our assistance when it's required. And that's what excites me the most. And equally today, when, when we talk about Charles and the regenerative movement, again, we can share that space. We can share the data. That, that, that is the most important thing we can do in these times, is record and share and, and of course tell the stories and Charles Massey from his family farm down in Cooma looking at the story that had unfolded over a generation, looking at then confronting that and going around the country and looking at more than 100 regenerative agriculture projects. He has a book filled with those stories and I suppose our capacity to share that space and hold that space with Charles and put our messages into his stories and make it engaging. That's that's really what I, I feel is is our our big opportunity in in anything we do. So um, I'm holding a space here for Charles to come up and talk to us about his wonderful book, Call of the Read World <laughs> <laughs> Call, call, sing it. geez, that'll, that'll be worse. Um, call of the reed warbler and everything. Oh, hang on, he's coming forth now. <laughs> he, he's, that, there's the reed warbler, Charles. Um, so, so, so please please welcome Charles for what I know is going to be a really informative talk. Thanks very much, Costa, and welcome, everyone.
1: I'm still trying to get out of my mind the vision of Costa and his undies, but... Um <laughs> So yes, we're in challenging times which I'll sketch a bit but uh, there are wonderful solutions um, for us to handle those times uh, through regenerative ag, permaculture, etc. And so I'll also be preaching a little bit of revolution along the way. So it's a simple message I'm talking about which all of you would be familiar with. From healthy landscapes comes healthy food, comes healthy people and healthy planet. And the challenging times are that we now have undoubtedly moved into the Anthropocene era. Anthropo being that humans have now tipped our Earth systems into a whole new epoch after the stable period of the Holocene. A period that ironically gave us agriculture which has led to civilisation and to the predicament we're now in. and um, I'm associated uh, at the ANU Fenner School where people like Will Steffen are down the road. And it's extraordinary as the evidence mounts and mounts and mounts um, at the scepticism in the face of overwhelming scientific evidence. And what's confronting us is the greatest challenge humanity has ever faced. Makes world wars look like little storms in teacups. So that's the context. A lot of people don't realise we focus on climate, but That extraordinary blue-green planet on the right, the conditions for life were actually evolved by life. Uh, 3.1 billion years ago, bacteria first threw oxygen up into the atmosphere. And over 400 million years ago, the great plants, as they got going, began the regulation of carbon dioxide. So that blue-green planet is an interrelated system of eight Major earth systems that self-organise themselves to maintain conditions for life, and we have now interfered with that. And climate at the top, the um, climate-biosphere integrity or biodiversity, and the interrelated biogeochemical flows of nitrogen and phosphorus. I've highlighted them at the start because we have now pushed them beyond safe limits. We don't know where, what's next? Is it going to be tipping points or what? and the others, bar the ozone layer, and we we pulled back from the ozone layer just in time, people don't realise how dangerous that was, but the others, land systems, oceans, fresh water and the atmosphere, are are all coming close to those dangerous limits. The key point I want to emphasise is that in this extraordinary self-organising system, it's industrial agriculture that is one of the key players, if not the key player, in pushing us beyond those limits. There's a corollary to that, and that's grounds for hope. If industrial agriculture is a key player in that, a regenerative agriculture that pulls down carbon and restores biodiversity, etc., is a key part of the solution. And I call it an underground insurgency, obviously playing on healthy soil, but um, it's through healthy food and fibre off these regenerated landscapes. We with the broader landscapes need to partner with the urban Population and create an agriculture of health. And so I'm not going to bore you with how my book evolved. Um, it's full of hope and solutions. Um, I'm an expert on making mistakes in farming. <laughs> uh, I've made most of them. I've ploughed sandy country, watched the storm gut it, put half a day shoveling sand off fences. I've overgrazed country and taken out the uh, valuable perennials and despite that I was always biophilic, I was always mad keen on nature so I was working against my own inclinations and eventually having a merino stub where we were doing innovative things in animal welfare and, and new types of genetics, a lot of my clients, a couple of hundred in six states, so I was travelling 80,000 k's a year looking at our landscapes deteriorating, a lot of my clients were what you'd call the early adopters and I noticed that they were also the early adopters in new forms of regenerative ag from the nineties on with holistic grazing and stuff. And looking at my own journey, I I sort of said, you know, what the hell's going on? So I went back as a mature age student, so-called mature, um, in my late fifties to examine what caused this transformational shift and so in a way that's what has led to the book. And really, um, reflecting on my journey and what these others have been through, I realised that 95 plus percent of we farmers are landscape illiterate. We cannot read whether the landscape is healthy or not, how it's functioning. And um, so that's really how I, <coughs> I structured the book. Um, just quickly, I wanted to look in southern Australia, the southern half of Australia, a range of practices under regenerative ag, of which I regard permaculture as one, uh, and we need to integrate more, I believe, with permaculturalists, and so holistic grazing, agroforestry, keyline, all those sorts of things. So i constructed the book really around these wonderful stories of what people were doing to regenerate land, but the key thing was looking at, at five basic landscape functions to illustrate how you can regenerate them. And Of course they're all interconnected and we've got to start there with this ancient continent because when Europeans first arrived they came with a different mind from a different land. So they came from a country that was really post glacial, chock full of nutrients, humid soils, humid climate and with practices suited to that. They came to Australia some of our soils, 3.8 billion years ago, years old, totally leached. Um, underneath is this underlying salt burden, much of the landscape. Dry centre you know, interior. And because of those scarce nutrients like phosphorus, the way our landscape functions, microbially under the ground and above, Australia has these unique symbiotic collaborative systems to recycle those scarce elements quickly and share them around, if you like, both above and below the ground. So it's a totally different land that these Europeans hit. And um, you muck around with it, it takes too many trees off, you get whacked behind the air like dry land salinity, only took 30, 40 years in Western Australia, it's now in every state (coughs) and growing by the million, it's quite a few million acres already. (coughs) And part of what I've just talked about is it wasn't just Europeans coming from a different land, they came with a totally different mind. And uh, I didn't originate this stuff, there's some wonderful book, books like Caroline Merchant on um, the organic mind, etc. But our indigenous people and even a medieval peasant, you could say they were of the organic mind in that they saw themselves as an indivisible part of Mother Nature, not separate from it, part of, and, and celebrated its cycles and... Everything they did was in that context and then came the the remarkable period of the renaissance scientific revolution, uh, industrial revolution, capitalist revolution and the net result of that was we became separated from mother nature to see ourselves as above and separate and really it became a resource to extract profit from and we stopped identifying with it so really the current industrial paradigm is (laughs) nature's become the enemy. And that that picture you see on the left, one of the things I did in my thesis was to examine a lot of the advertisements in the rural paper, because the the big multinationals, um, they're not employing psychologists for nothing. So that was an ad for Glyphosate Roundup. Uh, The Roundup drum at the bottom, look at the sexy face, sexy eyelids. The language embedded in it is things like trust your killer instincts and I've got dozens of these to show. Um, It's a reinforcement of that mechanical mind. So our urgent challenge, and I know I upset people when I say this, I think the word sustainable is a bit passe. To me it means marking time, holding firm. We need something more open going forward and built around um, that's why I use the word regeneration because it's actually enable, enabling the processes of self-organisation of nature to take us to a healthier space if we get out of the way and let it do it. So that was me. Um, dyslexic if you like, I could not read that that landscape was terminal and incredibly ill. That's, and that came about because um, I had to take over a farm at 22, I'd asked all the best advice, family, best farmers, Department of Ag, CSIRO. So I was inducted into an industrial mindset and how to manage the land. And the result was um, I became illiterate about our landscapes. That picture there shows a fence line between two neighbours in the country I'm from. (laughs) And so really that induction into a mind is all about the paradigms and worldviews that you're imbued with, which determines how you manage and live your life. And that pretty much sums up. The the farmer on the right has an extractive approach to his sensitive grasslands and the guy on the left is quite different. You probably all would have remembered that day, uh, about a month ago, when Tarthra burned 60-70 knot winds and in Western Victoria as well. Which is a tragedy, because it's a wonderful little town, but I would argue, a thousand years of topsoil soil blowing across the New Zealand is no less a tragedy. And that was right through the landscape. So very quickly, I'm not going to bore you with this journey of ecological literacy, but I, I'm sort of adopting from other ecologists and adding one, you could simplify how a landscape works through f- five basic functions which you'd you'd all know, the solar energy function, getting those sugars into the soil to drive the whole process, even down to our fossil fuels, water cycle, soil mineral cycle, dynamic ecosystem communities or biodiversity. And the one I've added is the human social. As one farmer said to me, um, our biggest problem is the square foot of real estate between our ears. Uh, And that's really what it's about. The point I want to emphasise is that all those cycles are interconnected and indivisible. You can't fiddle around or damage one without the whole thing um, being degraded and shaken up. So I'll just quickly run you through. Uh, Obviously, if I could put it crudely, I'm probably in your way, sorry. Um, My role as a landscape manager is to try and stack on as many solar panels on those plants as I can for 12 months of the year to drive those sugars in and drive the whole system. And so the the solar function impacts all the others in this virtuous circle. So holistic grazers, which I am, our role is to keep as much green through a diversity of perennials, annuals, forbs, shrubs, for as much of the year as we can. And same with a lot of the new developments in cropping, multi-species stacking and all the rest of it. Now, I stayed with this guy in the Karoo region of South Africa, Norman Kroon. That paddock on the right is his neighbour when his country was like that when he started. So that's 400 years of set stocking. Before the Dutch and English arrived, there were rivers in that country on the right with hippopotami swimming around in it. He adopted holistic grazing and you can look at the results. Diversity, soft soils. Um, he's now tripled his income. And the basis of that was getting those green uh, solar panels going, deep roots, perennials and the mix and away it went. Australia, another example, northwest Queensland. That country, that red arrow is the same tree in the lands- landscape. That country in the top left is like concrete through overstocking, overgrazing. In only ten years of changing the solar and other cycles, That's where he's ended up. And bottom left, that was a steep-sided erosion gully. But with proper management and even cattle hooves, he's now got um, 45 degree banks and regeneration. So that's why regeneration um, is such an appropriate word. Australia now has three world breakthrough developments in cropping, broadacre cropping. You would have heard of Colin Sias' pasture cropping and Bruce Maynard no-kill. What they're doing is, in the autumn, when they're due to sow, our valuable native, what are called the C4 summer-growing grasses, are going dormant. So they drill into that. They then use animals, because most of the modern cereals and canolas are edible, they use animals then to regenerate the land in the, through the winter. Top left, when it's time to harvest, and the animals have been off for a while. They harvest the cereal just as the C4 grasses are waking up. So you've got green through the summer, you've got ground cover. The middle photo is your traditional industrial ag, well over 50 per cent bare ground and a lot of compaction. So it's chalk and cheese. And so we're now getting crops off perennial landscapes. Function number two, the water cycle. Again, I won't go into it. It's a matter of getting deep roots and more air spaces and healthy soil. I've heard so many stories like that photo on the left. You get your soils absorbent and active and you get a four to six inch rain. Happened at home in 24 hour rain. The compacted soils under set stocking are bad management. They start running red water at about two inches. The soil profile's chocker and soil's starting to move. The other landscapes, up to four to six inches, starting to get a clear trickle of water. So the point is, you change your soil, solar and water cycle, in the driest continent on earth with irregular rain, one farmer can triple his rain in that 24 hours versus a neighbour. It's sort of no-brainer stuff, but because we can't read a landscape, we've missed the point. And uh, another example out of Mexico, um, that blue arrow is the same point in that landscape. On the left, um, there's a lot of water there. That's because it's run off compacted concrete country. And in only 27 years, that's on the right, is where it's got to. No water visible, but probably a thousand times at least more stored in that system. And there's there's other ways of doing it. Peter Andrews' work, um, Keyline. This guy, Peter and Kate Marshall out near Braidwood, that top left photo, They've got 4,000 acres of neighbours who flogged the crap out of the country with horses and God knows what. So they get got all that water pouring off in a big rain. They've got a technique of capturing it, storing it. They've transformed that top left type country in, into what you see on the two right photos. And their creek now runs perennially out of their place. So the whole catchment now has running water, whereas before you had about two days of rushing water. So there's some wonderful stuff going on. That's world-class development. Uh, cycle number, function number three, the soil mineral cycle. If anyone knows about that, it's this room. And I've, I've had uh, Elaine Ingham's um, soil food web redrawn for Australia, but I don't need to preach here the importance of all those critters and organisms and microbes, microhazal fungi, etc., in how we develop a healthy soil. But you've got to get the solar and the water to feed them and nourishment nourish them and get that working, and accessing thousands of nutrients that aren't available if you're going to poison with fertiliser and chemical. Now when I was young and silly, I used to do a lot of mountaineering, climbing out of ANU, and sometime in the 70s, I forget what year now, I was up the upper Tasman with uh, an experienced Kiwi, and we stopped for a rest, we had heavy packs, and I was scratching around in this red ice, and I said, Is that algae? What's going on? And rather aggressively he said, no, that's your bloody Mallee drought of the 30s. And uh, Francis Ratcliffe in Flying Fox and Drifting Sand has written about the kingdom of the dust in the 30s. But out of Broken Hill, South Australian pastoral country, Mallee, Wimmera, we lost millions of tonnes of soil up to 4,000 kilometres and turned the New Zealand Alps red. That's happened on four other occasions. And anyone who's a football fan knows we don't want to give the the Kiwis any more leeway. leeway. (laughs) And certainly not all our topsoil and nutrients. But it's not just the past. Um, When I was doing some PhD work, I was visiting a farmer, a wonderful organic cropper, at the bottom of that blue range at the head of the Liverpool Plains. And we're talking about some of the world's best chocolate volcanic soils here. And it was a dry season and the previous night they'd had eight mils of rain, that's all. And I drove through the next morning and I just stopped. Got over a fence which is just past the railway line. I had a look at the soil and it was capped and friable and dry. It was impervious pretty well. And twelve hours later there's water lying on soil that should have disappeared in five minutes. And uh, I just found that totally shocking. And that was overworked, too much tillage too many poisons, too many industrial fertilisers that kill those soils and their structure. And just to give you an idea, if you combine those cycles, there's now evidence to show if we just lift 1% more carbon into our soils, they'll store another 140,000 plus litres of water per hectare for you. So again, it's sort of no-brainer stuff. Anyone who's done climbing knows that the thing you hate is down climbing. You can't see where you're going, it's a lot more dangerous. This goat has down climbed 200 metres or more to get his daily dose of mineral salts. That's how important nutrients are to us, which I'll touch on a bit later. And the third major cropping evolution is quite extraordinary from this couple, Ian and Di Haggerty in Western Australia. They've grown in the last 10 years of drought and huge debt in the Western Australian cropping belt. They've grown from 1,600 to 30,000 acres with a new biological cropping Suited to broad acres. They combine vermi juice, worm juice, with compost extract juice, put it around the um, seed, and then use animals to holistically graze using their microbes, their gut flora microbes, to interact with the soil in dry times. And they're getting viable yields and slash their costs 95%. So, this is what happens at the end of harvest in the um, West Australian Mediterranean, across Australia, the Mediterranean belt. Um, Post-harvest, that fence line is haggard, is on the right, their neighbour who's traditional. So you end up with five months of white reflective sand in the summer. Top right is the neighbour's paddock post-harvest. I'd say 85% bare ground, reflective. That's their paddock now on the bottom. They've got perennials returning green for a lot of the summer. And the departments of ag and others have told them you can't have green in the Western Australian summer in the cropping belt. And I needn't didn't, belabour the fourth function, biodiversity, dynamic ecosystems, you know, parasitic insects, birds, the whole dynamism of both pest control and, and other regulation in our systems. I was going to use some photos from Rowan Reed's fabulous place, but he's going to be talking next. So um, Rowan and people like the Stewarts I've illustrated here have created one of the greatest social learning enterprises in Australia for farmers and Rowan will be talking in a minute. So in a wonderful place for growing trees, because it was probably upwards of um, largely forested, then over-cleared. So the Stuarts, top left, started in 94, with down to 2% of veg on the whole farm. Within five years, bottom left, that's where they've got to. That strainer post and the red, the white, is the same in all three photos. That's the reference point. And so this year, that's what their country looks like on the right and as Rowan will probably allude to, they've now stacked multiple enterprises into that even though they've gone out to 20% plus vegetation. They're running more livestock and doing it better and they've got other enterprises besides uh, agroforestry results, you know, cut flowers and um, uh, all sorts of other options uh, as well as having cured their saline lands, etc sort of just getting biodiversity back into a landscape. This guy, one of the world's great bird artists, took over a bare 4,000 acres in Western Victoria. They have now got upwards of 100 kilometres of self-sown seed breaks and regenerated all these riparian areas. And now you've got heaps of straw-necked ibis, for example, coming in as unpaid pest controller controllers in their landscape. And Bruce Pascoe, who I know well, and people like Bill Gamage have started to show that there's 2,000 generations of knowledge that we've ignored in our managed landscapes. And I work with this guy who's now a close friend, Rod Mason, he's a senior in Garriga lawman on the Manera. We run an annual burning workshop. Because a lot of our native vegetation is suited to smoke and heat regeneration for propagules and other things. <coughs> and not to be ignored. And I think a major opening for what we can do, as Bruce outlines. And I won't belabor the point here. Most of us grazers think horizontally, but actually our landscapes are full of shrubs, packed with um, 10,000 times more nutrients, which we could make available for humans and our livestock. Whether it's tree lucentagasaste, which is a legume, bottom left, salt bushes, blue bushes, etc. And sh- things like sheep and cattle worms don't live on the vertical landscape. And of course this is nothing new, the oak landscapes of um, Portugal and Spain. Again, you can stack six or seven enterprises from cropping, grazing, the world's most famous ham, yamon, etc. And Dave Watson, uh, along with Dave Holmgren, have sort of... Been far sighted in, in developing some of those sort of landscapes. And so that brings us to the fifth, the square foot of real estate problem. Uh, and as I'm saying, all of these functions are linked, but it's this thing in here that's really the determining factor on whether we get them working well and self organising. So we're talking about paradigms, mental models, which is really where our landscape illiteracy comes from. So I'm not going to belabor the point, but going back to uni and catching up on a lot of years of missed work with the uh, emergence of computers and systems thinking and complex adaptive systems thinking, the thing that really hit me about a key trait of complex adaptive systems is that when they're disturbed, uh, given the chance, using solutions that pop up inside called emergent properties, they will equilibrate not necessarily back, say if it's a landscape, to where they were, but at least to a state of resilient, functioning health. And I think it's a new worldview for us to think about confronting the Anthropocene because I kept hearing these leading farmers say, you know, my, my role is to get out of the way of Mother Nature. It took me a couple of years to think about that and I realised they were saying, my role is to enable self-organisation of those functions in that landscape. As the wonderful Wendell Berry said in uh, his landmark book, The Unsettling of America, you cannot damage what you depended upon without damaging yourself. So I just want to get on to healing earth and people quickly. Now, Paul Hawken, who's a wonderful writer of change in this field, many of you would have read Blessed Unrest, I guess, uh, has now edited a recent book called Drawdown, fully costed by hundreds of scientists. The hundred best ways to draw carbon out of the atmosphere and put it back into the ground or stop it being released. And currently his number one is if we could re-engineer the wastefulness of refrigeration. And I had a yarn with him in Melbourne about a month back and he only spoke about the top twenty methods to draw down carbon. And in that top twenty were five variants of regenerative ag, from agroforestry to holistic grazing. And I said, what happens if you put them all together? Just call it regenerative ag. And he said, shit. It'd be number one, regenerative ag, or involving permaculture, etc. But not just number one, probably by more than 40% of the current number one. So that's, to me, that's unbelievably exciting. It's what we can do to immediately address probably one of the worst elements of the earth's systems that we've destabilised. And we're getting some numbers on it. This couple, uh, John Ives, ex um 30 years ago they bought a rundown place out of gas, a lot of flogged to the hill. All the timber had come off the ridges and the ridges in, the, in many parts of Australia is where underground recharge of water occurs. And a lot of bare ground, they've replanted, got their ground cover up. And this first bit of university research trying to get numbers um, they've sequestered more soil carbon in that 30 years than 11 times their total farm emissions, vehicles and all the rest of it. And they've taken their soil carbon from 1 to 4%. I think this is the biggie. Um, people forget that left-hand, both those landscapes portrayed, not the one on the right, um, We co-evolved in those for up to a million years ago. So (coughs) the women would go off gathering. And most indigenous societies, women can identify anywhere from uh, 500 or more food and medicine or plants. And the men would go off hunting. But they didn't just get meat. They were hunting animals that were grazing shrub and grass landscape. And there's tens of thousands of nutrients in there. The result of that evolutionary period, is that hardwired in our alimentary canal, our organs, heart and our gut, reporting to the brain are sensory devices that tells us when we're short of nutrients or what we might need. And any mother here or anyone who's watched their partner in the last stage of pregnancy when they get these, what we're a bit sceptical at times, of these cravings, it's actually the body shrieking at that period of peak demand in the third trimester. I'm missing a critical nutrient. We're still hardwired for those, and, and our domestic animals can detect at least 500 What are the phytonutrients? <coughs> so we can rewrite the view, the pathway of human evolution a bit if you like. And that's not quite as funny as it seems. <coughs> the point I want to make, having worked with a wonderful professor in Utah State Uni, who studied Animals in grazing landscapes, and then work with human nutritionists. Is that our landscapes are diverse arrays of plants that are actually nutrition centres and pharmacies. And we ignore this at our peril. And the plants make a range of secondary phytochemicals. And look at that more than 8,000 phenolics, 25,000 or more terpenes, alkaloids. We plant a lot of Australian caseo wattles at home, they're full of tannins, and, and a lot of our domestic animals know that tannin is a good way to cure intestinal worms, etc. So we haven't even really started to look at some of these issues. <coughs> so really, for herbivores, eating a variety of foods in a variety of places, it's got huge consequences for us. And I'm thinking about some of the eating fads that we can get extreme about. We don't want to ignore our evolutionary history and the source of some of the phytochemicals that we're co-evolved for. And you would have all, you'd be all aware of what we're doing through industrial ag selection of for production of of our crops uh, and cosmetics and stuff. But this is reasonably recent research into 63 wheat cultivars, mainly the soft whites for our breads. Yeah, we've got dwarf varieties just focused on producing heaps. They're drug addicts because they're also selected to respond to lots of fertilizer. Um, so they're high yield, input responsive but the nutrients have crashed. And you know micronutrient deficiencies like magnesium, manganese, selenium, etc., critical to our immune system and our cell physiology, etc. Uh, and there's heaps of research now showing what, what's happening. And I'm going to link this to some of the trends in human health directly. Because it's also happening in our vegetables and fruits. And that research has been around a long while. So if you're going to Irrigate, heavily irrigate, over-irrigate, soil, pull on, put on the NPK. Uh, you're going to compromise phytochemical richness in those foods. And because uh, they're selected for yield and not that richness. And I'm, I'm preaching to the converted here, I know, anyone who's tasted heritage foods, like mulberries and stuff uh, from last century versus the highly productive but absolutely bland crap that is served up with a lot of the modern varieties, you'll know what we've lost in terms of critical nutrients and you won't be able to see the details there. Why this is not on the radar is it's so costly to measure all these nutrients. It's such complexity in the chemistry but prevent it with some um, nutritionists have tried and this is off healthy uh, non-industrial landscapes so just primary compounds, you know, your minerals, vitamins, fatty acids, etc. In something like spinach, it's got well over 100 primary nutrients in it. If you then go and look at the healthy soils for your secondaries, something like a herb like oregano, again, well over 100. We haven't really started to look. So imagine if we started to test industrial foods where the soils have stopped accessing, the microbes stopped accessing nutrients, and they're just getting the drug um, supplements. The uh, difference is stark. I'm sure you would have seen this, the guy that gave us the medical, ethical philosophy, Hippocrates, nearly two and a half thousand years ago, attributed to him. Let food be thy medicine, and medicine be thy food. Uh, Incredibly profound. So just to wrap up for a few concluding comments, I just want to put on the radar some of the latest stuff, and it's been repressed, on the world's most widely used herbicide, Roundup, uh, aka glyphosate. Nearly a million tonnes goes out now, a lot of it linked to GM, and the GM actually has caused them to use more because they're now using it to desiccate crops at the point of harvest and all that sort of thing. There's some indicators starting to come out, and you can imagine anyone researching glyphosate in the States lost their tenure very quickly because of the power of the Monsanto's, etc. The red line is, from the early 90s, use of glyphosate with GM's soy and corn. The bars, yellow bars, if you can see them, is the parallel rise in autism and an incredibly high coefficient of variation, which sort of you very rarely see that in science. This is only one little indicator. What's really interesting, if you look at that line, imaginary line there, when, when Europe decided to ban some of the GM, um, the um, yellow bars started to flatten out once they stopped getting some of those GM and the use of GM coming in. No, that's off the States, I think. Yeah, out of the States, I think. Um, So, I'm I'm saying we're into a silent spring too, and and there's lots of research now coming because people have now been able to research independent of uh, US Farm Bill and and some of the universities. These guys, um, five years ago, reviewed over 280 medical, biomedical papers. I won't go through the details. They conclude glyphosate may be the most significant environmental toxin and most biologically disruptive chemical in our environment. And they go through, and I've seen lots of top soil scientists, the hugely destructive impact of glyphosate on the soil bugs and the cycling and nutrients. What they've targeted, though, i am just summarised two key points. The main action of glyphosate is it hits our gut microbiome, the very front line of our whole immune system. And it disrupts a major amino acid pathway um, that helps, is fundamental to that immune system and, uh, and blocks other basic um, pathways. <coughs> now, I have no fear in saying I think this is another tobacco or worse. Um, and these guys really conclude that most of the escalation in a lot of our modern diseases, from the allergies through the cancers and the whole lot. It's a pretty good chance, because of its targeting of the gut microbiome immune system, Um, glyphosate's a huge player in all that. So, I want to finish on and up, but uh, you might as well be aware. Another good reason why we want to grow our own food and buy good organics. So without exaggerating, I I think as a species we are really on the edge. Uh, And that's, I'm talking about the Anthropocene, and I'm talking about human health that's connected to that. Not gonna slash our wrists. So we could all get spotted and go off and uh, join Eric Idle down the pub, sing the Monty Python's Galaxy song. So remember when you're feeling very small and insecure, how amazingly unlikely is your birth, and pray that there's intelligent life somewhere in space. (laughs) Yeah, because there's bugger all down here on Earth. (laughs) Um, I don't subscribe to that, even though it's good fun to sing. What I am saying is that agriculture, and include that in permaculture, absolutely front and center to our futures. Uh, yeah, we're part of the problem, certainly in industrial ag, but we're undeniably part of the solution. And that solution is enabling processes of self-organization to return our landscape functions back to health. And let nature get on with it and not try and interfere because she's pretty good at it. And this guy, a wonderful environmental historian in America, Donald Wooster had three principles for good farming. Making people healthier, promoting a just society, and preserving the earth and its network of life. So I guess I'm saying by turning these challenges into opportunities, we can build heaps of soil organic carbon. We know we can do that. We can regenerate those functions. And out of that, you can stack more enterprises on farms to keep next generation farming instead of them having to go. Certainly, create better economic, social, and environmental resilience and human health. That's the big connector that we can also regenerate. So, we need a new story for our times, and you people here don't need to be told that because the story of growth and greed and economic rationalism and endless destruction has failed us, and regenerative agriculture really is the positive story about renewing that. I just want to throw this out. I think if we start to think about healthy landscape functions, it probably has implications for some of the design thinking in in, in permaculture, certainly in broad acres, but could apply to city blocks. Um, Principle one, which our wonderful musicians on Sunday sang about, observe, feel, contemplate, interact. Well, part of that should be, are all those five functions operating well? And if not, That should be a key consideration before we get down onto the design paper. Uh, In other words, assess the health status of the landscape before you can't wait to get into it, which is partly what principle one is about, you know, stop and have a look. Uh, So in the planning, incorporate these key steps to their regeneration. I know much of what I'm saying is already being done and allow for the interdependence and synchronicity of those functions. Uh, enable, in other words, allow that self-organisation process to occur. <coughs> and as I said, there's three integrated components to rebuilding earth and society. Uh, it's us broader landscape managers, p- producing food, uh, healthy food. If, which, if we need that to be sustained, we need the 90% of the people are in the city to start buying some of that if they can't grow it. Etc. So that's the, the point two. And point three, which combines two also, is what David Holmgren's wonderful book's about, and that's uh, uh, Retro Suburbia. So, as I said, they're the three components for us to regenerate society. And to finish with a quote attributed to Dietrich Bonhoeffer the ultimate test of a moral society is the kind of world it leaves to its children. And so, yeah, I'm um, preaching underground insurgency and revolution because the solution's not going to come from the top. It's up to us collectively in this room. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Charles. Um, More than a little bit of food for thought there, to say the least. Um, It's been a, a wonderful series of uh, opening, opening uh, keynotes each morning to uh, get everyone uh, ready for the day ahead. Now, we'll take a, a couple of questions. Dan, I think,
2: Dan up the back. Thank you so much, love your work. I, I love seeing, I haven't seen this at this depth before, the, the bringing together of what happens um, on a cosmological worldview level with what happens in the paddock. Uh, and I know this is a chicken and egg sort of question or, or observation, I'm interested in the relationship between what you're calling, and lots of other people are calling, regenerative agriculture, and what's underneath that, um, where, where how what you said, Leonard, for me was saying effectively that regenerative agriculture and maybe regenerative culture, maybe even regenerative PowerPoint presentations, um, regenerative everything, um, is a byproduct or a, an outcome of that move that you alluded to at the beginning, from an uh, industrial mind to organic mind. And I was wondering if you had a phrase around that, because it seems to me that that's as important, if not more important, in terms of the transition we need to undertake. Uh, what, come, what came to mind as you were talking for me was the, was the phrase regenerative cosmology. Thank you.
1: Yeah, a really good question. Regenerative cosmology it slips in my mind what the other answer was. Uh, just re- regenerative worldview, whatever. I mean, just give you an example of what we've got to do. Um, A few years ago the non-profit environmental organisation Planet Ark surveyed Australian kids six and under and they they chose the same proportion who live in the city as the bush. Only one in four has climbed a tree or a rock and they surveyed under ten-year-olds and for every one hour of outdoor play uh, eight to nine hours in front of a screen and I remember Winston Churchill, for all his faults, was certainly a wonderful writer. He understood metaphor and all that. And In 1946, he was crossing a train to give a talk, crossing the states in a train to give a talk in Missouri. And he came up with the um, powerful statement that still resonates, that from Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic, an iron curtain has descended across Europe. Well, I would undoubtedly say that an electronic curtain is now descended between the young generations and nature. And um, that's got to be part of um, what you're talking about—a a new cosmology, a new worldview—which has to be back to the organic. We have to reconnect and identify with Mother Nature, because uh, look at the results if we don't. Thanks,
2: uh, Charles. I just feel very moved from your from your talk, and I'm sure everyone here is. And um, I'm just interested to know what, how the response is for. I mean. What I think what's powerful about what you're sharing is your accessibility. You can, you know, you can relate to the, the our uncle farmers and you know people who wouldn't listen to us younger hippies. And I'm just wondering how the response is from uh, from those in those
1: traditional and
2: yeah, yeah. Thanks.
1: Um, challenging. Um, what I looked at in my thesis, even though I was a, a biologist and human ecologist, I actually looked at transformative learning. What went on here? And I I, I subsequently found the same lessons were corroborated in transformative learning in the literature in the States, in in education. So what I found from the 80 I interviewed in my thesis was in about 60% of the cases, they needed a major life shock to crack that carapace in their mind. You know, it was Colin Syce was burnt in a bushfire, a marriage breakup, Uh, the 80s drought was a major one for all of us, uh, etc. And the other 40%, some were already innately biophilic or a little series of shocks, so... Um, I come from a district, there's about a 1,000 farmers, there's only eight of us doing this and we're regarded as, you know, pretty weird. But the shocks are starting to come. I've just run workshops in Western Australia and South Australia in the cropping zone where the debt's done that. And in each case, 100 odd farmers, there's about 10 at the back, just listening. And I I think it's going to have to be, unfortunately, it's going to be climate, um, the soil's getting increasingly dead and yields dropping and costs going up. Those sort of things are going to trigger the change, but there's no easy answers. So it's a really top question.
3: Your presentation started talking about the Anthropocene. Albrecht said that um, we shouldn't accept that that's the final story and we should already coin a new term and start growing the symbiocene. Have you thought about that? (laughs) Thank you. Thank you you very much for your talk and for your practical ending as well of what we what we can do. Um, I really appreciate your comment about complex adaptive systems and I think that's a great tool for this community to start tapping into and understanding um, and applying within their work as well. Um, my question is, there was a figure thrown around about um, some future projection of urbanisation of up to 80% of the world populations and it suddenly struck me that they will be living on land that we could be using for agriculture. I hadn't quite connected those two points before in my head. So my carapace has been cracked for that. Um, where do you think the interface is and how, how should we in influence it? Obviously policy, but uh, urban design has come to mind. Um, how to influence people who own that private land, who will sell it because it will become very profitable for them to do so. Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: Bloody difficult questions here today. Um, <laughs> and that's a really, really important one. Look, on the broader scheme, and I don't say this publicly, I, I, I don't think it's going to be that simple that we're all going to go to... There's going to be some sort of Malthusian crash, let's face it, but you can't talk about that in public. Um, I have a younger... My youngest daughter works in Melbourne in the cutting-edge food and urban design area in, a, in an organisation called Sustain, and they're trying to fight to stop the developers gobbling up more good um, market gardens. And the first people in are Maccas and Woolies to buy the land and set up. So it's got to come, yeah, I mean I'm no favour in uh, in policy and all that, but I guess it has to come through that sort of a change. And, and just to give you an example of how difficult it is, on, um, on Saturday night I was down at Maria talking to that group SAGE, one of the uh, early developers of a a sustainable um, food culture in a a town and um, spoke to the guy who organised it and he said, look, you know, great, we had 100 people there, but he said we are isolated because our um, council are all climate sceptics, Trump-supporting, and that seems to be the nature at the moment, that those sort of people tend to gravitate to council, so uh, it's easy to preach that we have to get in there, but... It's a combination of solutions, I think. But the, the best one is us voting with our feet, how we buy food, how we grow food, retro-suburbia stuff, which has some wonderful solutions which answer some of your questions. Yeah, such a complex... We could have a whole five-day conference on this.
0: Yeah. So, um, again, uh, please uh, put your hands together for for Charles.